Welcome back to Agent Investor, inspiring stories of active agents investing in real estate and building passive income. In a business where potential deals are all around you, why not leverage your skills to invest for yourself, your family, and your future? And now, let's jump into the latest episode of Agent Investor. All right. I've got a guest on today that is going to be sharing with you a wealth of sales information. And for all of you agents out there that have gone on face-to-face appointments and maybe bumped into a seller or two whose house needed a little bit of work or maybe had a lot of stuff in their house and might just want to sell the good old-fashioned easy cash way, by listening to this podcast, by listening to this show, you're going to learn how to prepare for listing appointments a little bit differently, how to calculate repairs on a face-to-face seller appointment, how to come up with an offer on a face-to-face seller appointment, and most importantly, how to convert a listing and or seller appointment into a cash deal, either to fix and flip, wholesale, or buy and hold for yourself. So, Jared Vanadima, welcome to Agent Investor. How are you doing today, my friend? It is an honor to be here. Thank you for finally inviting me on. It's always nice. You to must see have you. had nobody else to uh, to fill the spot, so you gave me the call. Yeah, well, it's always nice to see people that have a background with my name in the back. So anytime <laughs> I can do that, I, I definitely you're you're worth the invite. Turning subliminal messaging entrepreneurs. I love that. Um, so I know we're here to talk about you know seller appointment conversion, but before we jump into that, I wanted to just talk a little bit about you know yourself, um, how you got into the company why you wanted to get into the company because before you joined Ocean City Development, you were you were fully employed, right? You were working for somebody else in sales. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Correct. Yeah. So I got into sales a couple of years after college. Um, my first job out of college, I was an EMT, which was an awesome job. It was a crazy job, but it paid like 11 bucks an hour and I had a ton of student loans. And so I started talking to some people about different job opportunities. Family friends said, hey, I think you'd be pretty good at sales. I interviewed at this technology company and that was it. I never looked back. So I've been in sales now for a little over 11 years. And when we met, I was at a company, a technology company that was very small when I joined. And then we grew fast. We IPO'd um, and I had some stock. And so I've always been interested in real estate. So while I was doing my sales role at that company, I was trying to wholesale on the side. Um, I pulled off a couple of deals. I lost money on a couple of deals. And then right around the time that COVID hit, I said, listen, I'm more passionate about this real estate stuff than I am even my current full-time job now. I said, let me reach out to some owners of development companies that do this at a high level see what I can learn from them, try to find some mentorship, maybe offer to work for them for free, just so that I can do some deals and stop losing money, basically. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I reached out to Cameron, you ended up calling me back. I think Chris Martin was supposed to call me. There was some, you know, miscommunication, then you called me. And uh, we had like a 30, 40 minute conversation on that first phone call. And then that first phone call turned into 
two, three, four weeks of calls until eventually, you know, you said, Hey, let's, you know, create a position. I'm hiring for the sales manager role and that's it. The rest is history. Yeah. So I think one thing that you said in there, I know, you know, we're going to hit on more parts of your story that I really liked. And this is something that not enough people think about, which is like, you wanted to figure out a way where you could either get paid to basically get mentored, to be an investor. And I, I'm pretty sure that you took, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but at least in the beginning, you took a fairly significant pay cut, right? I did. Yeah. Um, about half. So I had a, I was in a sales role where I was making a lot of commission. Then I became a manager. So it was a bigger base. Then I built out a sales training division in the company. So it was a bigger base and a bonus based on the overall performance of uh, the sales teams that I kind of oversaw at the company at the end of the year. So by the time I left, yeah, it was um, it was more than a 50% pay cut on my base. Yeah. And, and I think like, you know, when we go to, you know, I always talk about people, you know, how committed are you to investing? I always say to people, how committed are you on a scale of one to 10? And everybody always says a 10. And then I give them the first, not test, but like the follow-up question to that, when they tell me it's a 10, I ask them to always do something that's going to prove it's a 10. And nine times out of 10, they're really like a three. Mm -hmm. So one thing to kind of keep in mind, you know, for anybody, and again, we're going to have a lot of different things that we talk about, but to keep in mind, if you want to be an investor and you know that that's a seven to eight eight figure net worth thing that you're going to do in your career, don't, you know, lose out on the seven to eight million, uh, seven to eight figures, because you're going to trip over pennies, right? And and for you, that made a lot of sense. And I was at the time, basically hiring to replace myself. I know I told the story at our two day event that we had a couple months ago, but that was, a, I'm usually not a good hirer in terms of like, I want to hire fast, you're supposed to hire slow, and fire fast. But I usually am so impatient that I want to hire fast. And um, with you, I didn't do that. You were one of the few people who I actually took my time with. And I took my time only because I knew that you were going to be replacing me. And so I knew that I needed somebody. I mean, this may sound extremely egotistical, but it's reality. I think of myself as pretty skilled. So I feel like, okay, I need someone that's pretty skilled to kind of replace me. And that's how it kind of, you know, came to fruition. So. You ended up coming in, you know, as as a sales manager, but on day one, you you had nobody to manage. So so talk a little bit about like how that part went. Yeah. So I mean, before I was even out in the field, you had me on the phones as an ISA for probably two to three weeks. You know, just taking inbound calls from sellers who were expressing some sort of interest, uh, maybe you know, 50% of those were qualified. And then we'd set them up with appointments. And we would try to figure out how closable are these appointments, basically. But at that point, I was still setting them up for agents to take. Mm -hmm. And so you had had a couple of, you know, a handful of agents who were converting at a pretty high level. So it was probably maybe three weeks into the role before I was actually in the field. And I was shadowing uh, Jason Goldfarb and Tyler Scaglione. And they both closed deals on the two appointments I shadowed with them. And they were two very different properties, very different types of sellers, very different deals. 
Um, so that's kind of how I originally got started on the training side. Yeah. And we I should, would, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, we should back up a little bit for context because, um, not everybody knows everything about my business or maybe this is the first time somebody's listening, but, um, we have a pretty well oiled machine in terms of getting face-to-face seller appointments. So most of it stems from having a marketing budget, doing things like mailers and pay-per-click and TV. And, you know, we've done billboards in the past and, you know, we, we buy, you know, Facebook leads, all different types of, of leads. And I will say that as we're having this conversation, what I don't want people to do is think, hey, I can't do any of this because I can't get to this scale yet. We are going to talk about how to do this at a smaller scale And we are going to talk about how you can just convert potentially just a listing appointment into a cash deal. But for the purposes of like this call and having Jared on, we're talking about, you know, our company, you know, that spends, you know, three to $4 million a year in marketing and goes on roughly about a hundred face-to-face appointments a week. Um, So Jared himself is responsible for going out to like 10 or 20 of those. So just keep this in mind. But we are going to talk specifically about how agents, even if you get one appointment a month or even one appointment a quarter, how you can how you can do some of the same stuff. So sorry to cut you off, but uh, I feel like we might have lost some people there. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So I got started with a lot of training. You and I would actually do recaps at the end of every day and do a bunch of role plays. And that's how I knew actually throughout the hiring process with you that the sales formula that you had was really solid because I came from a company where that's what I did. You know, I helped build a sales methodology and customize it to our product or service um, so that we could consistently run that same process at every, uh, at that point, it was on every call. Mm -hmm. And you had the same thing that you were encouraging us to run on every in-person appointment. So slowly but surely, I started to get maybe two, three, four appointments a week. And I'd go out and meet with different types of sellers, hear different types of motivation for why they're looking to sell and whether or not they'd be willing to take a discount in exchange for a convenient process. Um, or maybe they were you know, a better fit for the retail sale. And so it was kind of like a slow burn for the first probably 45 to 60 days. And then at that point, I probably started to go out on maybe 10 to 15 appointments a week. And that's when like the learning and the growth just became exponential. You know, you start closing your first couple of deals and learning how to problem solve in some pretty hectic environments at some of these properties. Yeah. And learning how to negotiate, learning how to do a walkthrough of a property and accurately come up with a budget. I mean, I say accurately come up even now, sometimes my budgets are off almost three years later, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like a trial by fire in the beginning. But as time goes on and you see more properties, you talk to more people um, and you are more disciplined with the process, you start to get a more consistent outcome and more contract signed. So our audiences are agents. And one of the things that agents you know, always say to me when they've never gone on a cash offer appointment before or never converted a listing appointment into a cash deal is why would somebody ever take below fair market value? And and in some cases, part of that conversation is almost like an ethical thing 
where it's almost like, well, shouldn't you just push them to always list on the MLS? So what would you say to that? Like, what are the situations where you would come back and say to that agent who might be listening right now, like, no, like you're totally wrong. This is why. Yeah. So if, if somebody wants to sell cash and you try to push them to list and that's not what they want, they're just going to sell to somebody else for cash. You and know, what, you, but what are some of those reasons? Like, what yeah. are the reasons? And cause you mentioned specifically, like they're choosing the convenience of a cash offer. So there's benefits of the cash offer, but why is it that, that it, they could have 10 agents out to their house and they're still going to go with the investor? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to start by saying, you know, if somebody says they want cash, you want to give them a cash offer. If not, they'll go to someone else. The reason I say that is I've, I've tried to kind of force feed the retail solution to a cash person who had cash motivation and they didn't want more money, right? Because their, their circumstances just wouldn't allow for them. The money didn't matter. So the, I'd say the primary reasons, one of the biggest is health issues and health concerns. So I meet with a lot of people who are maybe in their seventies or eighties. They've lived in the house for a long time. Um, they're, you know, they're experiencing some sort of health issue, mostly physical, and they just want an easy process. They don't, they don't want to go through the process of cleaning up the house, boxing everything up, selling stuff, staging, doing open houses, working with an agent, having this ongoing process that for them is considered extremely inconvenient. Um, that's probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest. Mm -hmm. um, I would also say probate. So very common, you know, somebody passes away, they own a house and they have an heir or a couple of kids who inherit the property. And maybe those kids don't even live in the state. You know, they live in New Jersey or California, or Arizona, and now they've just inherited this property that's got 50 years worth of stuff in it, a whole bunch of deferred maintenance. Um, and they can't deal with it because, you know, they've got lives to manage as well. And, you know, it's an emotional thing too. You know, someone inherits a property, the family member passes away. They don't want a long drawn out uh, sales situation where there's a lot of unknowns. A lot of times they just want to cut ties with the property, mm -hmm. you know, split the money and move on. Um, those are two really, really big ones, really common ones. Yep. Uh, the third, which, I mean, it's, there are varying degrees of hoarding, but I'm sure a lot of people have heard of hoarding, right? Or seen yep. the show. I, I was fortunate that in my first week, I saw probably the most intense hoarding property I've ever seen. And it was somebody who, you know, was obviously a little mentally ill. The property was in total disrepair. I mean, you could barely walk around in it, but all cleaned out and all done over. I mean, it was close to a million dollar condo in the city, right? But in order to get it in, into that condition, there was nobody that's going to buy the, that type of property in that type of condition, mm -hmm. nor could you probably get conventional financing, even if you wanted to put it on the MLS. It could have been a $20,000 clean out if you tried to go that route prior to even being able to sell it the traditional way. Um, and so there's varying degrees of, of hoarding properties. And the last thing I'll say about that is people are uh, private, right? Yep. 
if if your house has a ton of stuff in it, you don't want to just open up your doors for an open house so that all your neighbors can come in and see, you know, what's been going on in your property. A lot of times with hoarding, there's like some trauma that's been unresolved and people just want to, you know, let go after years and years of collecting stuff. I would say those are the top three for sure. Yeah. And another thing to just clarify too. So this is not the type of thing where if you go on, you know, one listing appointment in a year that you're going to convert that one listing appointment into a cash offer. It's unlikely. Five to 10% of all sellers want the ease of a cash sale. And there are, you know, pros and cons of, of listing your house traditionally and pros and cons of taking a cash offer. You know, if you take a cash offer, you're picking the closing date. You're leaving all your junk behind. You're doing no repairs. There's no inspections, especially with the market turning right now days on market have gone way up. So as the market continues to change and getting a little bit weaker, sellers want to know when they're going to close. They want to plan their life out. So Jared gave you know some of the most common reasons why people sell cash. But if we actually sat down here and went through, because we've bought maybe 120, 130 properties this year, if we went through every single person, we'd have probably 30 or 40 different reasons. And um, sometimes there's 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 two or three reasons for one person. It could be that they want to leave their stuff behind and they want to pick their closing date. And um, there's all different levels of motivation when you're meeting with people. And it's our job, like Jared said, when you go out and you meet with a seller, we're diagnosing like what is the right solution for them, whether it's a cash solution or whether it's a retail solution. Most of the time, it turns out, even if they're responding to a cash offer flyer or ad or whatever, they still typically tend to choose retail more frequently. Um, but you know, again, if you're an agent, you're going out on a face-to-face appointment. When somebody's saying, hey, like I don't want to list my house, if you try to force them to list it, you're not only missing an opportunity potentially for yourself or an investor, but you're also not necessarily serving your client the right way. Um, so in order to you know, convert these, um, you know, we need to do the diagnosis. So when, you, you know, when you're prepping for an appointment or you're on the call or even when you're in person, how do you diagnose cash versus retail? Yes, yeah, so the short answer is qualifying questions. So we ask the same set of qualifying questions on what we call a confirmation call before we go out to the appointment so that we can be best prepared to provide whatever solution is the best fit. Um, but you don't really know somebody's situation unless you ask really good open-ended questions. So the first question we ask is like question one and one A. Um, the first question I ask is how long have you owned the property? Right. And that's because we want to know how much equity they have ballpark in that property. Mm -hmm. You know, someone's looking for a cash offer, but they've only owned the property for two years. It's almost impossible that they'll have enough equity to accept a cash offer, given how big of a discount we need to get it at to be profitable. The next question is what's got you thinking about selling? When you ask somebody what's got you thinking about selling, they, they could tell you anything. They could say, well, I'm looking to downsize. You know, when someone gives us a, an answer like that, I'm looking at downsize. Okay, well, why are you looking to downsize? You know, what's the reason? And then they might say, well, uh, you know, my husband and I, we're getting up there in age. We can't really take care of the house anymore. 
Um, you know, we haven't been able to do any upgrades for the last couple of years. His health's not great. We don't like the winters anymore. We want to move further down south, you know, just better quality of life. Okay, so like we'll ask these questions and we'll ask deeper level questions to get more information to find out what's the real motivation. Because someone has to be motivated to take a discount for the sale of their house. If, if they're not acknowledging that they're willing to take a discount in exchange for convenience, it's probably not going to be a cash offer type of deal. So those are the first two questions we ask on every call. Then we'll ask them to tell us about the condition. So the condition is usually a pretty easy question to get somebody talking. And you know, we start open-ended, hey, tell me about the condition of the property. To make it easy for them, we might say, on a scale of one to 10, one being a teardown, 10 being new construction, what would you rate your property? And you never know what someone's going to say. I mean, I, I talked to somebody yesterday. They told me it was a two, two or a three. I got there in person. It was probably like a five or a six. Right. But they were, they were realistic about how much work the property needed. Mm -hmm. You could talk to someone. They could say, oh, it's an 11 out of 10. And they'll go on and they'll tell you all the great things about the property and how much money they've put into it. And they just redid the roof and put in central air. And if somebody's put 30, 50, 60 grand worth of work into the property anytime recently, they're going to want to get a return on that investment. They're probably not going to want to take a 30% discount on what they could get. Yeah. And right. all these, all these questions, it's like when you go to the doctor's office and you say, Hey, there's something wrong with me. And the doctor asks you a million different questions. They're trying to diagnose, you know, what you might have. We're doing the same thing. I mean, in any sales situation, you know, you're looking and you're saying, hey, let me gather, you know, evidence to what, what you might want or not want. And the funny thing is, is like, sometimes people don't even know what they want. So, you know, we have to actually be the ones kind of like really digging because they may not fully understand. But, you know, you mentioned something like when people, you know, say it's an 11 out of 10 condition. And it's like, how confident are you once you go through your line line, you know, of questioning that you know which direction they should go in? Before getting to the appointment, I'm like a seven or eight out of 10 on what the direction is. But then once you get to the appointment, it could be a very different situation. Uh-huh. Um, most of the time, the in-person situation lines up with what you talk about over the phone, but sometimes there's a surprise. Mm -hmm. When you talk to someone on the phone, you've never met them before. This is your first interaction. And most people don't buy and sell houses at the volume that we do, mm -hmm. right? This is, this is their home. They've lived in it for 30 plus years. They've only known me for two minutes. And now I'm asking all these invasive questions about their property they mm -hmm. might not be super forthcoming with me over the phone. Yep. But on that call, we just try to generate a little bit of trust and a comfort level and some sort of rapport so that when we get there in person, we can actually sit down and maybe have a deeper conversation and maybe they open up a little bit more. They become more realistic. They share more information. And that's the information you need to actually uh, recommend the appropriate solution for them. Yeah. So by the time that you get done with a call and then like a walkthrough and a conversation before you give them what you think the solution is, how confident are you that you know what the right solution is? I'd say like eight out of 10 times. 
Yeah. So again, you know, going back to like, you know, you're an agent, you get an appointment once in a while, you know, asking questions is the basis of all sales. So by the time you're done, if you've asked the right questions and you've listened, you should have a pretty good understanding of like how to serve the person. And again, you know, five to 10% of the time serving the person is going to be having them sell direct to you. And I'll give you guys just an example of, um, you know, a deal that we did with um, a team in our office. And I've mentioned this deal a lot because it was a high profit deal, but it's a team in our office. Their, Their friend's mom passed away. They inherited the home. Home needed work. It's very nice, very nice town in Massachusetts, very sought after town. And when, when they went on the face-to-face appointment, you know, they were expecting that it was going to be a listing. And then when they got there, and I'm sure Jared can attest to this, you know, a lot of times somebody may want to sell a house because there's emotional issues there, right? Like their mom just passed away. They're dealing with that. They don't want to, you know, become Joe contractor and renovate a house and get it back on the market. They wanting an easy, quick sale. And because the team in our office have worked with us now for four years, they were aware that they could give a cash offer. And because they're in our inner circle program, we actually partnered with them. And on this particular deal, this was kind of a crazy one because we actually didn't estimate what the property was going to sell correctly. And long story short, we both made you know, our split and their split over six figures on the deal. And that's actually one of the benefits of being in the inner circle. Um, Well, two benefits related to this call. The first is that if you've got a face-to-face seller appointment in New England, somebody on my team will actually go out on the appointment with you. So keep this in mind that if you're in our inner circle program, you can have someone from our team actually go out with you. Um, And if we do get it as an investment deal, potentially do a profit share split with us where we manage the actual renovation um, and put up the money. So just keep that in mind. And this is not an inner circle, like, you know, sales thing. So I'm not going to go too much in detail about the inner circle. But if you do want to learn more, go to www.agentinvestorinnercircle.com and schedule a day and time to talk to me. So we're, we're, we're talking about, you know, obviously, you know, the reasons that people sell cash, the confidence level, you know, that you might have going in there. Um, what we didn't talk about yet is how you come up with the offer and how you come up with a repair budget. Yeah. So, I mean, our processes are probably, you know, much more well-developed than most companies that do what we do or individuals, but we're fortunate in that we put together a CMA prior to every appointment. So we'll put together a great ARV comp. So after repair value comp, based on the conversation we have over the phone with the seller prior to the appointment, we get kind of a ballpark of what we think the renovation budget might be. And then we'll go in with a range in mind of what we can pay, depending on the overall condition of the property, and then anything else that we learn at the appointment. Like we might get to an appointment and say like, wow, this is actually a really nice, quiet, private residential neighborhood in a nice town, nicer than we thought. This is something maybe we'll pay a little bit more for. Or we get there and there's, you know, low ceilings or 
Um, you know, you have to walk through one bedroom to get to another and we didn't know that. Okay, maybe this is something we pay a little less for. So, so high level, we have that analysis before we go in. Once we're out on the road, we want to drive by that comp that we have, that we've seen online in person. And, and we really want to get our eyes on it to say, is this actually a good comp for the subject property that we're going to look at? Or is it a better house? Or is it a worse house? And for what reason? And just actually see it there in person and, and be honest with ourselves about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we go into the actual house, uh, there's a couple things. We take pictures of all of the house. So the exterior, the interior, because it's a lot to take in while you're also trying to build rapport with the seller as you're doing the walkthrough and having conversations and learning about them and all that stuff, you don't want to miss anything. So we try to take good pictures that we can reference back on to say, okay, did we need to do that half bath or what type of condition were the floors actually in? Or, you know, what about the deck in the back? Was it rotted out at all or was it in good shape? So we can kind of reference back on what we saw. Mm -hmm. And then I'll always take five to 10 minutes to just step out after I do the walkthrough so that I can kind of focus, look back on the pictures. And then we have a, a budget calculator, basically, that has ballpark our fixed costs for things like a medium-sized kitchen or replacement windows or a roof or whatever it might be. And I'll go through and I'll try to be very honest and even sometimes like overly aggressive about what it might cost us, tally it all up, run the numbers. So in short, take the ARV, go 70% of the ARV minus the cost of repairs. And that gives me a number Mm -hmm. to kind of go one layer deeper. I don't want to go too deep, but it's, you know, this all comes down to the numbers and the profitability of a deal. Yep. I'll look at that offer number. I'll put it into a little profit calculator we have that also takes into account what are our acquisition costs? What are our holding costs? What are our sales costs? And if I offer this number and it sells at X, how much are we going to make? And is that an acceptable profit range? Mm -hmm. So once I'm tight on all those numbers, I can confidently go back in and sit down and pretty much negotiate with anybody and have mm-hmm. the data to back up why we need to pay what we need to pay. So, you know, you've you've done your best with the repairs. You've done your best calculating what the property would be worth after the fact. Um, what does the, the negotiation typically look like? Are you, you know, going in and just kind of leaving an offer on the table? Like whether you're trying to sign it retail or cash, um, what's the approach there? Yeah, so the negotiation actually starts at the end of the phone call before you go out in person. So we do what's called an upfront contract. And so that's basically setting the expectations for the outcome of the appointment. So I always say, hey, the appointment's at 10 o'clock on Friday. I'm going to run some numbers tonight. I'm going to have a pretty good idea of what we can pay you before we even see the property. Once I do the walkthrough, I'm going to tighten up the budget. I'll run some numbers and we're going to make you the best offer we possibly can and pay you the most we can and still hit our profit target. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if we can put a price and terms together that makes sense for you that day, are you in a position to make a decision 
and sign a contract that day. And so if they say, yes, I can make a decision that day, I know I'm, I'm not going to leave there without getting a contract signed, right? If it's closable, if they say, I'm not going to make a decision that day, that's fine. I kind of take my foot off the gas, but I want to know why not. So then I'll, I'll ask every time, tell me more about your decision-making process. Who else is involved? What's important to you? What's the timeline? Are there attorneys involved? That way, at least I know. And then I can still have a really productive appointment. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's going to determine what we end up doing with price at the appointment. So mm-hmm. let's say I go back in the house and they can make a decision that day. And all the decision makers are there. What I do is I sit down and I say, so I've got some numbers for you. And it either is or is not close to the number you were looking for. But here it is. And here's how we got to it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very transparent. And I think when I show them the thought in the process that goes into the number, at the very least, they don't feel offended by the number because they know we didn't just you know pull it out of a hat. When I show them sometimes even, hey, this is the target profit margin we look to make, you know, 60 to 80K, even at this number, it puts us under 60K. So this mm-hmm. is even me stretching, right? Yeah. If I paid you what you wanted, we'd be in the hole 20 grand. We couldn't do that deal at all. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I'll ask them for some feedback. Um, so that's just how to kind of get it started. Um, so why why not just you know give them an offer and say, call me back uh, next week? Uh, because you'll never hear back from them. The worst, what they're probably expecting is for us to show up, do a five-minute walkthrough, give them an offer, let them think about it, we leave, and then we check back with them, right? That's probably the number one way to lose deals. You want to do the opposite, right? You want to actually ask somebody when you're going over the numbers, like, hey, let's sit down, you know, because sometimes people will want to stand up in the living room or outside the house or in the garage or whatever. When you kind of sit down with somebody, it kind of, you know, calms them down a little bit. You can regain focus of the conversation and you can thoughtfully go through the numbers. Mm -hmm. And then again, it's not just about the numbers and the negotiation. That's a a big factor, but that's your opportunity to go back to the pain points and the reasons why they wanted this type of solution in the first place Mm -hmm. and how they're always going to be trying to strike that balance between getting the most amount of money or getting the most amount of convenience. Right. And a lot of people want the most amount of money and the most amount of convenience, but the reality is that does not exist. Right, right. So that's yeah, I mean, when I think- you go back and forth with them to figure out, okay, what is the real priority? Is it a convenient process or is it getting the most amount of money? Yeah, and I, and I think that's like the hardest part, you know, about like going out on these appointments is that people want both. And, and it's natural to want both. And I'm sure every agent who's on this call will understand that even if you're just going in for a straight listing appointment, it's the same thing. What do they want? Well, they want $50,000 more than what their house is worth. It's rare that you ever go into any real selling situation and both parties are just completely reasonable and it's a five minute kind of thing. And it's definitely a process. And Jared kept mentioning the word processing. I know he talked about the fact that we have a process and it's really important that all steps are followed. Um, I mentioned this at our two-day event. It takes a while to get good at this. At this, 
And it's why, you know, we created the inner circle to be able to help people specifically with this process, especially if you're an agent who has, you know, a listing appointment a month and you don't have the number of at-bats that we have. Um, But it's also important and probably more important if you're an agent that's going to go out there specifically prospecting for cash deals, Um, you know, whether you're, again, mailing or cold calling or door knocking or working your sphere of influence or whatever, the more appointments that you go on, the more at-bats you have, the, the more important it is to follow this process because following the process is going to get you the deal. And, you know, a lot of it is getting a person, Jared talked about an upfront contract and we could do an hour training just on that, but you're trying to get somebody prepared to make a decision that day. And the analogy that, you know, I've been given and I always repeat is like, when you go into a doctor's office and you're about to get a shot, the doctor really preps you that you're going to get a shot. Like you don't go in and they don't say, hey, turn to the left and then you get a shot, right? Um, and, and and that's what a lot of salespeople do. And that's what I used to do before I really understood all of these concepts is like, whether you're going for a listing appointment or a cash deal or one or the other, you want the person to make a decision when you're out there because it's what's in your best interest. But a lot of times, if you don't prepare them to make a decision or that they even know that they're supposed to make a decision on the appointment, it's like you know putting a needle in them without prepping them that they're going to get a shot, right? So the upfront contracting, everything that we do is we're preparing them that like, hey, you know, we're going to come out there. We're going to come up with our best offer. We're going to make a decision when we when we go out there and take the pressure off of them. Like if it doesn't work for you, if we can't find a solution that works for you, that's totally fine. But if we do find one that's mutually agreeable, our expectation is that if you like us and we have the right solution, that we're going to move forward. Like we're not going to just come back or call you back, you know, next Wednesday or whatever. So yesterday was a good example. So we actually, we had a lot of appointments yesterday. We signed two cash deals. One was in Lemonster. The one in Lemonster, we were able to get in touch with ahead of time over the phone, set the upfront contract. Lemonster is the home of Johnny Appleseed, right? I think so. <laughs> it is. It also, it also borders Fitchburg, which is unfortunately a place where I spent many years in college. Yeah. yeah. But um, so we were able to do an upfront contract. And the seller said, I don't know if I can make a decision that day. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, well, what are some of the concerns you have? This is over the phone. We addressed some of the concerns. It was mostly about timeline and um, getting a Title V and things like that. We were able to kind of ease her mind over the phone. And then at the in-person appointment, she was more comfortable signing the contract that day. Mm -hmm. Had we not been able to get in touch with her, like the second deal of the day, which was in Grafton, um, we weren't able to get in touch with them prior to no upfront contract. We still got it signed, but it was almost a three hour appointment. Yeah. Yep. So it was exactly. like, I mean, we were like every single question that you could imagine someone would have, they had in concern and like, you know, we were both willing to, to plow through all of it. Um, but had we been able to have a conversation over the phone with them, set an upfront contract, put their mind at ease more, it, it could have been a shorter appointment. Not yep. that the length of the appointment matters, but um, it was a big difference. 
For sure. I mean, and there's so many things that you do on the call ahead of the appointment, not just the upfront contract, but like you mentioned, asking all those questions, really figuring out like, I mean, if you do a really good call, a lot of times, you know, beforehand, if it's even a cash opportunity, you know, like I said, most of them aren't going to be cash opportunities. So if you're an agent going out on traditional listing appointments, you're not just going to, you know, slam you know, regular traditional sellers into the cash offer box, but you're also not going to, you don't want to do the opposite either. Like Jared mentioned, um, Matt, who's live right now, just asked the question, how do you handle the appointment? If you already know what the seller wants for the property, meaning know what they want in terms of price. Yeah, exactly. How would that change how you would, you know, handle things? Well, depending on the price that they say they want and how that compares to the initial analysis you do for what you can pay, if it's in the ballpark of what you can pay, what it would change is I would try to get out there in the next 30 minutes. You know, that's the biggest thing is if if you know what somebody wants and you can pay close to what they want, you want to be the first one there. You want to get it signed and you don't want to give them another opportunity to meet with anybody else. Yeah. Yeah, to me, like the when you when you get their asking price over the phone, a lot of times it falls into like one of three buckets. The first bucket is person is very clear, they want an investment offer, and they give you an asking price that's a in your wheelhouse that you could potentially pay. And that's what Jared just mentioned. I mean, you want to run out to those because if somebody else gets them first, they're probably going with that person. That's probably the most important thing you can do in that instance. The second thing that happens is sometimes somebody has an asking price, they've really thought it out, and their asking price is pretty much their asking price. If they say 300, maybe they'll do 280, but they've really thought it out. And they might even say to you over the phone, like, this is what I want. This is the minimum I would take. And again, you know, that happens a, a fair amount of times. And then, but but here's the here's the trouble, and this is why the phone versus in person is so tricky because you sometimes get people that they just throw out a crazy number, and that number has nothing to do with what they would actually take. It's almost like they think that they have to start super high. Um, Jerry, can you think like just thinking back in your memory, what was your biggest like percentage discount that you can think like? that you got like somebody that wanted way more. And then all of a sudden they sold like way less. Um, do you have any to come to mind? Like what the numbers kind of look like? Yeah. So we're closing on a condo in Methuen next week. Um, the phone screen, she had said that she was non-negotiable under 250,000 and we ended up signing it at 71,000. So literally 30% of what they said, or probably better said, a 70% discount off of their original asking price. Yep. Um, over the phone can really be tricky. Like Jared said earlier, you can usually get a pretty good feel. But, you know, again, you're asking a com complete stranger. And again, it's different if you're if it's your SOI, potentially. You know, if you know the person, it could potentially be a little bit different of a conversation. But, you know, we are speaking in terms in general about not our sphere of influence about like, you know, we generated these appointments from somebody that we didn't know. 
Um, so again, that's something that needs to be clarified. But yeah, I mean, you know, I when, when somebody gives an asking price, I like to combine all the questions together. All of the questions together paint a picture. Asking price is one question. So somebody might say, my asking is 250, but oh, by the way, like I absolutely won't list my house on the market. I just inherited the home and I want to leave my stuff as is. So I'm going to hear the number 250 in that example, but I might override it because I might be like, well, maybe they just think that their house is worth 250. And maybe they don't understand what it would be worth to an investor. Or maybe they think they just need to start out high, which is why, you know, not to get too much off topic, I would never suggest doing just a phone appointment. And unless the person is just seriously not motivated to sell, I would try to take as many face-to-face seller appointments as you can and try to attend as many as you can. So Jared, what would you say, you know, to an agent, you know, who only comes across these opportunities like once in a while, like how would you kind of approach that situation? Maybe, maybe the same or maybe differently, or how would you approach it? I mean, I would approach it the same. It's, I think that the process is the most important thing in just because let's say you don't follow the same process every time, regardless of what type of an appointment it is, right? Or what type of seller you're meeting with. Mm-hmm. What I've found in the past, especially when I would, you know, when I got started, was if I missed a step in the process and it felt like there should have been a deal and I walked out of that property without a contract, I, you know, I'd be driving down the road two minutes and I'd be like, damn, I forgot to ask, you know, where they were going to be going. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe the reason they didn't want to sign today is because they didn't have a place to go. So they didn't want to commit to sell their place without having a place to go. You know, so I think that just following that process every time and not missing the qualifying questions and just making sure that you're patient and getting all the information you need to be able to recommend the right solution, help them problem solve and talk through whatever obstacles they might have in their head is the most important thing, you know? So whether I was getting one appointment a week or one appointment a month or 10 a week, I would recommend following the same process the same way every single time. Now, if you only have one a month, the things that you can do is you can probably spend more time running your comps, probably spend more time driving the comps. You can probably, if it's not one step closable, spend more time doing thoughtful and strategic follow-up. You know, you can differentiate yourself by being maybe more involved in helping them make the process even easier. Like if it's someone who's up there in age, they don't have a lot of family, um, you know, maybe you offer to help them pack their stuff up if you have that additional time and bandwidth because you're not going on 10 or 15 appointments a week. Yeah. I would just try to maximize your available time to add value to the seller however you possibly could, but stick with the same basis uh, sales process. So I kind of look at it like this. If I'm giving my absolute best advice, I kind of look at it like this. If I'm an agent who is considering, you know, trying to do some wholesales or fix and flips and, and, and wanting to kind of like learn this business a little bit, I would think about it in two ways. I think you either need to have to be willing to try to generate several appointments per week. 
figure that out, whether it's spend marketing dollars, spend your time prospecting. I mean, there's a million different ways that you can get seller appointments and really yourself master the principles of how to take cash off for appointments. And that's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take energy. But once you figure that out, you will make money because it's another tool you have in your toolbox. And of course, if you're out there prospecting or marketing for seller appointments, you're going to grow your listing business too. Or I would go at it from the exact opposite direction, which is to always be aware of this. And maybe you don't specifically get good at this yourself, but you lean on somebody like us that can help you, right? So if I have somebody that's in the inner circle program and they've never gone on a cash offer appointment or they only go on a cash offer appointment once a quarter, they don't need to spend the hours learning and studying and preparing because we're going to do that for them. And we're going to come up with a solution to help them make money when they come across an investment opportunity like the one we talked about earlier, passively. So I look at you know investing that you can be passive, you know, working with somebody like us, and we're going to handle 90% of it, or you can be active. My opinion, you don't really want to try to be in between. Because what I don't think you want to do if you're if you're an agent that makes good money as an agent is the once a quarter that you maybe get a cash opportunity, you spend like three days trying to figure this all out. And realistically, I mean, Jared, I'll ask you your opinion. Do you think that that person is going to do a great job once a quarter? If they're going to go on one appointment per quarter, even if they try? Probably not because you're just not getting enough repetitions. Right. And again, it's not to say that somebody can't do this, you know, somewhat on their own. It's just that, you know, if it's not going to be a big part of kind of what you do, then I would seriously consider like whether or not you should be doing it yourself. Um, And the Inner Circle program not only has us with the ability to go on the appointment, but even if you're not local, we can coach you through this stuff. So again, you know, I say this not because... um, not necessarily because I want to be selling the Inner Circle program, but more so I created the Inner Circle program to solve this problem, okay? Um, now, switching gears a little bit to kind of, you know, your investing goals, how has kind of like working with us helped you to start achieving your investment goals? And what are your investment goals over the long run? Yeah, so my investment goals have changed since I started with the company. Originally, I wanted to basically learn how to acquire single family homes to flip using somebody else's money, i.e. divorce, and then save up enough capital to do my own marketing and do my own flips on the side. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's not a bad model. But what I realized is passive investing and having ownership of cash flowing assets long term mm-hmm. uh, is going to help me get to my goals and is going to mm-hmm. help me create generational wealth for my family, which is the most important thing. Yeah. So, you know, that's really where my focus is. Um, take making as much active commission and capital as I can through the day-to-day transactions that we're doing on the flip side of the business, but then taking that profit that you're working so, because with flips, you're always chasing the next flip in order to make money. 
Yep. But once you put that active capital into an asset that cash flows every single month, that asset continues to pay you month after month after month. And then it just compounds over time. Yep. You know, keeping it simple, it's make as much money as I possibly can in my active day to day, reinvest that into passive cash flowing assets, which we also have a division in the business until it gets to a point where I don't have to work anymore, but that Mm -hmm. I'm doing something that I love enough that I want to continue to work Mm -hmm. um, until eventually I ride off into the sunset, cash out, and I just go referee basketball full time and let my buildings pay my bills every day. Uh, Unbelievable. I I can't stand you guys with the goal to stop working. Um, Man, I just like real estate too much and like uh, refereeing all day long. It seems like, uh, I don't know, it doesn't seem exciting enough, but Maybe sitting at my re, re, uh, reclinable and backwards and forwards dentist chair isn't isn't cracked up for everybody, right? Mm. I'd still work uh, three. I I'd only not work during the winter time during oh, basketball God. season. Yeah, it's during basketball season. It's all hoops, and then after that, I'm still going to be doing deals the rest of the year. Nice. All right, good deal. Well, um, thank you for hopping on and. Um, you know, it, it definitely has been a game changer having you at the company. We we could have went in so many different directions. I mean, you are managing, you know, a team now and, um, you know, really responsible for driving the, the top line number for the active part of our investment business and, um, you know, allowing me really to focus more on the passive income goals for the company and raising capital for the apartment deals that you're a part of and, you know, just trying to increase all of our you know, passive income while keeping the active income, you know, doing well. And it's always a, a challenge and we could probably have a whole nother segment on all the challenges that we face on a day-to-day basis. But for now, we just, you know, make it sound really simple and really easy. And uh, like, there's not a lot of hiccups, yeah. but um, yeah. offline, offline, we can talk about all, all the struggles and challenges. So I got an inbox full of hiccups right now. Yes, sir. I do too. Yeah. So speaking of that, um, again, I appreciate you jumping on and I'm I'm gonna get to my inbox of hiccups as we uh after we jump off. So thank you. Sounds good. All right, guys, we'll be back again next week with another edition of the Agent Investor podcast and live stream. Guys, remember that you can tune into these live each and every week, Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern. The benefit of the main benefit of tuning in is the fact that you can ask questions live. And we always get a few questions every single time that we bring on a guest or even when I'm doing a solo edition. Uh, Keep in mind that you're always welcome to join live or if it's more convenient for you to just listen after the fact, that's cool too. So I hope that you guys, um, you know, got value out of this this session. And again, we're always trying to provide more value to our group, uh, the Agent Investor Group. And if you guys aren't in the Agent Investor Facebook group, please make sure to join at www.agentinvestor.com. The Facebook group is completely free. We share a bunch of videos and training and tips and tools for agents that want to achieve financial freedom through real estate investing. Remember, real estate sales will make you a living. Real estate investing will make you wealthy. We'll be back again next week, guys. Thank you for tuning in. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks again for listening to the Agent Investor Podcast. And especially... Thank you for sharing the show with other agents and reviewing the show on iTunes. Every time you share the show and leave a review, you are potentially changing someone's life. 
to get free weekly education, strategies, and to connect with other agent investors across the country, join our free Facebook group at agentinvestor.com. Again, that's agentinvestor.com.